This is the Anatomy of a Scream Pod Squad Network. I do want to take a moment to issue a bit of content warning here at the top of the episode. I do make mentions of incest and rape to the topic that I'm going to be talking about today. And while nothing is explicit or heavily detailed, I know that these are topics that people like to have a little uh, prep for in case it's something that they don't want to delve into at this time. My goal here is to discuss, hopefully inform, and never harm. So with that said, on to the episode. Welcome to Bodies of Horror the podcast where we look at all of our favorite horror films from the classic, the camp, to the cringe, through the lens of disability. My name is Nicole, I'm your host, and I'm thrilled to have you here. So what is on the examination table for this episode? Well, I'm going to be doing something a little bit different, and instead of looking at an individual film or a franchise, or even honing in on a specific theme to explore via a couple of films, I'm going to be sharing some thoughts on the rural horror or hillbilly horror subgenre and discuss how disability is represented in many of those films. A little disclaimer here. While this subgenre is mostly referred to as hillbilly horror, I'm going to refer to it as rural horror because Hillbilly is looked at as a derogatory term, and I just want to steer Claire from using it. Now, I was inspired to do this episode by the amazing Joe and Trace of Horrorqueers, who dedicated a few episodes on their Patreon to discussing horror. They had an episode discussing the subgenre as a whole, uh, a couple uh, looking at various films, and one that even looked at an episode of The X-Files. And it was all really great to kind of give, uh, you know, context to rural horror. Uh, This is Patreon content, though, so it is behind a paywall. But these are really great episodes that, as a unit, work as a fantastic primer of sorts. And, at least to me made me realize that the disability aspects of these films and of the genre aren't really discussed. I promise you that this isn't going to be just a regurgitation of their talking points because I have some different ideas of how rural horror functions and obviously want to hyper-focus on depictions of disability. So, What are some defining characteristics of rural horror? Well, it takes place in a rural setting. A remote mountain ranges, isolated farm countries, rolling desert, just to name a few examples. And is typically structured around outsiders passing through these areas and being stalked, hunted, and brutalized by locals. More often than, uh, than not, these outsiders are city folk and are truly just passing through on their way to their intended destination or have found themselves traveling from the city to these 
areas on a vacation. There are some other components that are common features of role horror that bleed into other subgenres. So I want to take a minute or so to talk about them and what I feel are the strongest connections that we see to other subgenres. In the Horror Queers episode discussing role horror itself, Joe connected it, I think, most closely with travel horror or road horror. This obviously fits because we're talking about non-locals finding themselves in these area by means of uh, purpose or accident. But when we look at other features of these films, I think we strongly get into aspects of folk or cult horror and zombie films. So let me explain this, uh, starting off with kind of the folk and cult horror connection. Folk and cult horror almost always features a remote or isolated location, so similar to what we see in role horror. An easy and recent reference, Midsommar and the Harga Commune, um, or even the island uh, of Summer Isle in The Wicker Man. In both rural and folk cult horror, um, the location of the film is crucial to the plot, but for slightly different reasons. In folk horror, the isolation is largely intentional, with the community is being essentially hidden to be able to practice beliefs without notice and maintain their way of life. Connected to that, outsiders don't typically find themselves just stumbling across a commune in horror. They are often lured in. Contrast to what we most commonly see in examples of rural horror, where outsiders are simply seen as intruders that accidentally come across, uh, you know, these, these places. Now the connection to zombie films for me is where we start to touch on aspects of disability representation, and I'll get into that in a bit. When we think of zombies, we think of reanimated corpses that lack the cognitive functioning and reasoning of the living, and in its place is an intensified need uh, to meet one's most basic need of survival, food. Whether it's a slow-moving zombie of Romero's original Night of the Living Dead or the fast zombies of 28 Days Later, they are equally ferocious once they've locked in on a meal, which that meal is typically flush. In rural horror, the antagonists often have similar attributes, unintelligent, unsophisticated, and violent, and that's not even adding in the bonus cannibalism that is a common feature in the subgenre as well. All right, so that was a little bit of a long journey to talk about the components of rural horror, at least some of them. Um, and I hope that doing it that way helped highlight the range of rural horror because we often have a very specific idea when that term comes up. And that is where I kind of want to segue into talking about a few specific films and representation. And I think the first place to start is with what I think comes to mind most frequently for folks, and that is our cannibalistic mutants. So we're talking about films like The Wrong Turn uh, franchise, I guess kind of minus um, the 2021 reboot, um, in some ways, 
and the hills have eyes, even Texas Chainsaw Massacre to a degree as well. Another bit of a disclaimer here, I'm not going to be throwing the word mutant around. Again, it's a term, just like with hillbilly horror, that we come to associate uh, with these characters in particular, but I don't know. Since we're looking at this from a disability perspective, it just doesn't work. It's always preferable when applicable to use the name of a specific disability when talking about disability, but since we don't really have that here, and since just the nature of these characters makes it a little more difficult to finesse the language, I'm going to be referring a lot to just congenital disability, which is a disability that someone is born with. To kind of put an even finer point on this, I want to pull up a quote uh, from an article called Hillbilly Horror, Reckoning with a Genre 15 Years After Wrong Turn by Elizabeth Price, and this was published in 2018. During the 2008 production process of Shelter, casting director Donna Belichick posted a casting call searching for actors with physical abnormalities to extra in a scene set in a West Virginia holler. The call beckoned responses from extras with the features extraordinarily tall or short, unusual body shapes, even physical abnormalities as long as there is normal mobility, unusual facial features, especially eyes. In response to public disapproval, Belichick told the Pittsburgh Tribune Review, I hope it's not an offensive thing. It's not meant to be a generalization about everyone in West Virginia. That's why we put that. It's a holler in the mountains, Belichick was then fired. What I find really interesting about the article and how this particular story is framed is that it's not framed within a disability context at all. It's, oh, well, you're making generalizations about individuals from this specific area, which is true. And that's definitely something that is a undercurrent to this whole subgenre about how there are these uh, ideas and generalizations that folks from cities, urban areas make about those that are in rural areas. It's brimming with bits of classism. All of this is true and important to know and something that is really part of the fabric of the subgenre. But this particular anecdote where it's talking about how a casting call was put out there and looking for individuals that met these certain requirements in a pretty offensive way wasn't given a lens of disability at all. It was, oh, well, you're making generalizations about folks from this area without looking at what the implications were from the disability aspect. So I, I just found that a really interesting story anecdote here to add in as to why talking about these characters in certain ways is challenging in a couple of different ways. So I just wanted to kind of get that out as well. So while both The Hills Have Eyes and Wrong Turn feature characters with disabilities, particularly the remake 
of the hills have eyes here. They are acquired in different ways, presented in different ways. In the remake of The Hills Have Eyes, you have a family that has for generations been dealing with the impacts of nuclear testing fallout and being essentially subjected to radiation poisoning and um, you see how that has impacted a family line. In Wrong Turn, we see that it has come about via uh, some toxic chemicals being uh, polluted into the water system and again you're seeing kind of a generational impact of that on a family. So I know I said off the top that I was going to be focusing in on the original The Hills Have Eyes but now that I'm thinking about it it probably makes more sense to focus on the remake because the original film, although the characters are certainly coded in a certain way, you know, on one hand, you never want to uh, heavily apply a disability and a disability read to characters where it's not implicit. And I think you also have to take into account time frame of that film and a lot of other factors. So I'm going to have to lock that one back, I think. And actually focus a little bit more on the remakes. I think it just is kind of a nicer fit here. But as I was saying, you have two films that are focused in on families in rural areas that are dealing with repercussions of basically environmental uh, poisoning and how that has played out through a family line over a number of years. Most of the entries in the Wrong Turn franchise and certainly The Hills Have Eyes go in on the format that I kind of laid out at the beginning where you have a group of travelers that are kind of just passing through. Sometimes they're together together, sometimes they all just kind of convene by a circumstance, but you just have a typically a group of people that are passing through. This puts them at a disadvantage because the individuals that are local to the area have the home field advantage. They know the lay of the land and they've known the lay of the land for some time. So they kind of have an upper hand in that way, of course. Something that has always stood out to me is how the physical appearance of the antagonists are often hidden um, up until we get kind of a, a reveal and it's not just individuals being horrified by what's going on around them you know with people dying but oh my god you have these absolutely horrific looking creatures that are doing this and so both the hills have eyes and wrong turn kind of lean in to that aspect as well. We see a few kills or we see some things going on and we see them hiding in wait, but we don't get to see kind of the antagonist's full force until, uh, you know, we get to this reveal. And again, I think it's really to kind of heighten that shock factor and kind of get at an equally horrified response for the audience. I appreciate how these work in these films a lot because they are pretty impactful moments 
but I think we need to take a second to look at the real life implications here. Individuals with what are defined as common congenital disabilities such as cleft lip or palate, uh, polydactyly, oligodactyly, where we're looking at the uh, presence of more than five fingers or toes or fewer than five fingers or toes, you know, they get a lot of these similar reactions too. So it's kind of playing in on some of those uh, type of things and just something to kind of note. This kind of connects to what I shared with that piece from the article around how these types of physical differences are often looked at in a very specific way and it's not positive. It's not respectful and usually not done with any kind of accuracy. These depictions are often pretty exploitative in nature. But again, I think that it's important to loop this back to how this folds into the general uh, stereotypes and depictions of individuals in rural communities and how um, this is all kind of part of it because I emphasize that disability really isn't the key point here with a lot of these films. They're not focusing in on disability in and of itself. It's how disability and how uh, disability has manifested in these communities. So that leads me into kind of the other, I think, common stereotype that you see um, in these films, and that is incest and inbreeding. Depictions of incest and inbreeding have been all part of the package of things that we use to other uh, rural communities, particularly rural south and the Appalachia areas. So I kind of want to not ignore that, but kind of look at it in a different way as well. Without getting into the science of it all, yes, there can be an increased risk of disability related to having a child within an incestuous relationship because you are dealing with an increased likelihood of passing along a recessive trait. An example of this would be how hemophilia became prevalent uh, through various royal lines. But that doesn't necessarily mean that every child within that relationship is going to have any kind of health impacts. But it is something that then they may be a carrier for. It's just, it becomes a higher risk situation. Of course, two people with no shared background, no shared ancestry can get together and both be carriers for uh, a certain disease. But the likelihood of that happening within a family is going to be a lot greater. So that's kind of the way to simplify I hope that makes sense and I hope I explained that in in the most appropriate and uh, kind of easily digestible fashion. But I think it's important to note just because there are these still kind of unknowns and preconceived ideas of specifically genetic disorders and how they occur. 
as someone with a genetic disability is something I've had to encounter and explain multiple times, which is a lot. So I just kind of wanted to put that out there. But the other thing I want to also mention around this component of rural horror is the fact that we are dealing with isolated communities here, isolated individuals. And so this is their relationship hold. This is how they keep uh, the family lines going. I think it also kind of hits on the idea of individuals with disabilities, be them physical disabilities, intellectual or developmental disabilities, the whole spectrum, not being able to have relationships outside of that group. So again, kind of working within kind of this insular group, you know, it's the idea that because I have a disability, the only person that would ever want to be in a sexual relationship with me is someone like me, someone with a physical disability. So you can see how all of this kind of comes together and melds into how these relationships are kind of portrayed in these films. The last aspect of disability representation that I want to hit on is specific to intellectual and developmental disabilities, but not necessarily in the same way that we've talked about it with our previous films. I'm not necessarily talking about how it plays in with kind of the the zombie aspects that I hit on earlier because we definitely have seen examples and I brought them up in both this episode and in other episodes, notably Texas Chainsaw Massacre and Friday the 13th, where we talked about some of the zombification of these characters with intellectual or developmental disabilities, either stated explicitly or coded or implied uh, pretty heavily. But here I want to talk about kind of a different aspect of it. Let's look at the film I Spit on Your Grave. Not necessarily a film that's always referenced in lists around rural horror, but one that certainly checks all the boxes. You have a character that is a kind of an outsider to a rural community that is there visiting is brutalized by the locals and takes revenge. This film is typically classified with the rape revenge stories as it should be. It is a phenomenal and I think really powerful film for a number of people. I happen to really love it, but I know that there are a lot of people who don't necessarily like it, find it pretty problematic, um, but I happen to think it's a really powerful film and is definitely one that, um, you know, I rank pretty highly in terms of this genre. But I want to talk specifically about one character in I Spit on Your Grave. So the story of I Spit on Your Grave is Jennifer is a writer. She runs this cabin in Connecticut and the uh, local, this local group of guys 
end up raping her violently. And she seeks her revenge and gets revenge on all of them. One of the characters is Matthew, one of the men. Now, this character works at a grocery store and is, uh, I guess, intellectually or developmentally disabled. This is uh, pretty explicitly stated in the film. And the men capture her, not Matthew, the character, but his friends that he's told about her. Um, because he meets her when he goes to deliver groceries to the cabin and he tells his group of friends about her and they essentially kidnap her um, so that Matthew can have sex with her because they want him to lose his virginity because, you know, again, kind of a what I was talking about a little previously, characters with disabilities aren't given kind of sexual autonomy sexual freedom were not looked at in the same way as non-disabled characters. We can only have sex when it is kind of awful and taboo and wrong. And so they have captured this woman and are going to have Matthew rape her. He cannot. So everyone else does. Eventually Matthew does. They she gets away, um, they attack her again, and after some alcohol, Matthew is able to, uh, rape Jennifer. It's a really horrific scene, a really, a really challenging film, but again, a really, I think, good film in a lot of ways, and the character of Matthew here, I find really interesting, because it's a character that has a job, has some independence, some autonomy, but still falls into some of these notions of disability. And I do think that a lot of that stems from the setting, the rural setting. Um, we talked a little bit about in the Texas Chainsaw Massacre and Friday the 13th episode about the need of community and friends and family in these settings. Now, family and community are, I think, a strong part of rural horror because it's always kind of a group of people, typically a family unit, that are kind of the attackers, our antagonists. But here we have a group of friends that can kind of have a similar function here. But, you know, it's... While he's able to show some independence and autonomy, it is reliant on his friends to give him the opportunity to have sex via rape. It is a, kind of a horrific uh, kind of path to walk down. But again, it does kind of go hand in hand with the way that we've seen sexuality and disability handled in a lot of films. But why I want to bring this up is because unlike some of the more, um, I don't know, I guess some of the more exaggerated ways that we've seen all kinds of disabilities treated, this one does have, I think, 
a more realistic route. Um, although I think another kind of underpinning that we see here is manipulation. That individuals with disabilities, and this can apply to intellectual and developmental disabilities, which I think is probably the most common one within this category, but also physical disabilities. If we happen to have, you know, a sole character that has a prominent disability kind of featured here in this group, they're the ones that are easily manipulated. They may not show enthusiasm or even want to participate in the violence and attacking of individuals, but are manipulated by uh, the other members of the group in some manner. And again, it kind of underrides individuals with disabilities having autonomy, thought, feelings, reason, all of the components that all humans have. Rape and sexual violence are certainly something that you see commonly in rural horror. This goes back to, I think, the film that is probably responsible for really locking it into our pop culture. And that is Deliverance. Even if you haven't seen the film, you know the references, you know kind of what happens, you know the banjos. It's a, kind of a, a, an interesting thing that something that is so, I think, key to so many elements of rural horror is often not even really considered a horror film. But I'm not talking about Deliverance. But um, sexual violence and rape are are usually part and parcel of these stories, and oftentimes are connected to this idea of, you know, this is how this type of relationship is achieved, is through force. And unfortunately, that's something that does carry over into some thoughts of disability, is that, well... Just like I was saying that, well, no one wants to sleep with individuals with disabilities besides someone else with a disability, perhaps, that any kind of sex that we are allowed to experience is really bad. It's violent. It's painful. It's non-consensual. It's a lot of all of these bad things put together. Um, so just something that I think kind of ties up another kind of fringe loose end to the genre. Something that's common, but something that isn't necessarily part of all films, but part of many. Well, I think that's a good place to kind of wrap it up. This is a really heavy episode just because there's a lot to unpack both with disability itself and then how it's kind of connected to all of the other components of how these rural communities are represented in these films. And I hope that I did a decent job. So many of these films really want to make some kind of point about the way that, um, you know, not just, you know, individuals in these urban areas look down upon uh, individuals living in rural areas, but also how these areas have been neglected on kind of a social 
political economic level as well so you know we're talking about how oftentimes there are outside forces that have caused the uh, the downfall to these communities obviously with uh, wrong turn and the mill pumping out this toxic waste into the water supply the nuclear testing site of the Hills Have Eyes remake, it's really showing how these communities weren't viewed with any value. And the individuals that lived in these communities were viewed as expendable, something I've mentioned related to disability and uh, those of us that are disabled. The article that I've referenced a couple of times, and it was also something that uh, Joe and Trace referenced in their episode uh, talking about rural horror as well. Um, I'm going to link it in the show notes, but it does a really good job at kind of going a little bit further into the lasting impacts of these stereotypes and tropes and how it still continued to influence the way that these areas and these communities and the people that live in them are perceived. It's a really great article um, on that level and I'll definitely link it in the notes so you can give it a read. With that said, I think we will wrap it up here. As always, thank you so much for listening. It really means a lot and I do hope that this has been you know, kind of informative episode. One that's a little different. So I hope that you've really enjoyed it. If you want to reach out to me, please, please do. I'm still on that Twitter break, but you can reach me via email at bodiesofhorror at gmail.com. Of course, as always, this podcast is a proud member of the Anatomy of a Scream pod squad so if you aren't subscribed already and again i don't know how you are listening to this and you're not subscribed because if you've listened to this i'm sure you've listened to other podcasts that are part of the anatomy of a screen feed and you love them so please subscribe rate review do all of that good podcast business so that other people can uh you know find find the feed and find your favorite shows and of course tell friends about it if you really like a a podcast or even just a podcast episode that really resonated with you let folks know share that love so all of that now out of the way thank you again for listening and until next time Scream Pod Squad.